0: It's good to see you all here today. My name is George Stagg, lead pastor of the church. Lawrence Simmons, my colleague, is uh, preaching in our sister site in St. Paul. We are alternating every other week right now as we proceed through the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew. I'm taking Mark and looking at uh, the person of Jesus Christ, who is He? And Lawrence is taking the Gospel of Matthew, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ. Hold on a second, I'm just going to … I felt the presence of that microphone stand. <laughs> um, so, we are looking today at kind of part two of the climax of the Gospel of Mark, uh, very common passage if you grew up in the church or been in the church for a while, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And honestly, up until uh, this week, a, a, a passage that has uh, troubled me, um, I really could never grasp why it… Uh, Lord God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the um, the images and the truths and the ideas and the stories and… and uh, that it, that it puts into our minds, that it, we can use then to reimage our own lives, to, to follow You and to reject the, the false gods and the idols of this world. God, I pray that you would um, help me to clearly communicate the message of Jesus today out of this text, that I could reflect the text, that it would be accurate and truthful. God, I pray that you would uh, bless us as a church in drawing us together in unity. And Father, for all of us here, regardless of where um, they are at in in faith, uh, that you would draw us all closer to a a true and… A uh, deep knowledge and understanding of you that saves and continues to save us. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. We uh, we meet once a month as an elder board. Twin Cities Church has a group of elders. There's elders for the Minneapolis site. There's elders for the Saint Paul site. We we meet together once a month, and uh, you know it's we we're just doing what the scriptures tell us to do. We are. Um, praying together, we are searching the Scriptures together, and we are just striving to shepherd the church well. And um, you know, churches go through seasons like families go through seasons, and um, sometimes you're just moving smooth, you know, as a family, and everything's running fine and doesn't seem to necessarily be a lot of urgent, big problems, and then sometimes as a family, you know, it seems like every week there's something new or there are these things that seemed, seem like they've been going on for a really long time, and you you don't see where things may come to an end and bring a bit of relief. And right now as a church, we, we are in a challenging season in a number of ways, um, just in terms of where we're at Regarding size uh, we 're a little over two hundred adults with a lot of kids and um, the dynamics of our church and how we 're organized we 've got to we 've got to do some some heavy lifting on our communication and our leadership development and we continue to grow we 've got to have leaders and if we don 't make some of these changes and things like that, I think we could just kind of stay around the 200, 250 or so, and be a great church, but that's not our mission. We've got to continue to, we would like to multiply throughout the Twin Cities. You know, I was uh, looking at some maps this week, and it just, I really would like to see a house church planted in every single one of the 88 neighborhoods in Minneapolis, not to mention St. Paul. Um, So... it, that and, those just, and then the shepherding needs of, of individuals and families in the church, and, uh, and then our own lives as elders, because the Scriptures say to, to watch yourselves and your teaching closely in Acts chapter 20 about the elders. And so we shepherd ourselves. And it can become a little bit overwhelming. Uh, our own personal and family challenges… Um, we're in a season right now, and if you're in our house church or a member of our leadership community, you kind of know some of the details of what are going on in, in our family um, and in, in our own persons, in my own life. Um, sometimes it seems like you're in a season where uh, all you see and comprehend are your sins and weaknesses, and uh, you wonder, am, am I ever going to get through this, this time? Um, sometimes it's sometimes it's challenges in your in your family or in your in your own life that you have no control over. You've got external attacks coming at you, um, and there's there's nothing you can do. You can't control the other people in your life that are that in your lives that are bringing you suffering and pain. and, and then there's always the injustice. And violence of the world. You know, several weeks ago, the 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 revelation came out about uh, who 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 indeed abducted Jason Wetterling 27 years ago. And if you've been in Minnesota for any duration of time, that's been a story that you've grown to be somewhat familiar with. Boy got abducted at 11 years old, and for 27 years, nobody knew where he was. Nobody knows knew what happened to him. And so that came out, and a lot of emotion around that. And if you took any time to read, um, the media about that story, you, you had to have some sense of being overwhelmed and disgusted. Uh, happy that there was some clu- some conclusion, um, but other than that, there wasn't anything happy about it at all. A lot of suffering and pain, uh, the continued racial divide, which really in the history of humankind is a never-ending problem, never-ending problem. and. Uh, the gospel, in, in if you look at really what the bulk of the social problems that the gospel addresses and the letters and the Scriptures address in, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament, you see that the biggest problems the gospel hits have to do with, with race, with race. And I was, I was having lunch on my day off today with a with a friend of mine, it's, he's a, a server at a restaurant I frequent here in Uptown. We've become friends, and, and uh, so earlier this week, I said, hey man, why don't you come over and let's grab some lunch, I'll throw some pizzas in the pizza oven, and, and so we were getting the details worked out, and so Thursday morning, he called, <laughs> and he goes, now, I apologize for asking you this beforehand, but, and then I stopped him halfway, and I said, no, I'm not going to ambush you about religion. Because he know, you know, he knows who I am. I have a lot of meetings in this place. Um, I've asked him one question, and it was like four years ago, about faith. Um, and we had a decent conversation about it. And... Uh, and, and I, I, you know, I, I laughed about it, um, but as I consider the conversations that I have with, m- with my neighbors, my friends, and those that don't know Jesus, uh, what I… because what I know his background, I know my friend's background a little bit um, in regard to faith and his experience in Christianity, and he, and he grew up and was active in an evangelical church until his mid to late 20s. And, and that's the story I get a lot. And so we seek to love and we seek to communicate truth, but we're we constantly coming up against um, the, the skepticism of, not unbelief really, it's, it's kind of the skepticism of, uh, why would I want to have anything to do with Christianity after my experiences? And it doesn't matter what tradition it's from, evangelical, Protestant, Catholic, fundamentalist, charismatic, whatever, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. And so, you know, and, and, I, and it, the weight of all this stuff just sometimes um, clouds us. And if you think of the message from two weeks ago, you know, it, we came to a spot where the disciples finally began to get a glimpse and an accurate understanding of Jesus And they were able to communicate, Jesus, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the promised one of Israel, you are the offspring of Abraham, you are the descendant of David that will bring peace to Israel forever, securing it from threat from its enemies. And then Jesus said, yes, yep, you're right, and I'm going to be killed. And Peter and the disciples, you know, They just believed that Jesus was a little misunderstanding about who He was, and so they corrected Him. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, for your interests are not of God's but of man's. And so we left that passage, identifying the Christ, and if you're with the disciples, you're with the disciples, you've got this, you're confused. Because they've been under the oppression of foreign rule for 400 years. And prior to that, it was 400 years of, of being in exile, challenged by threats of their enemies, oppressed, serving foreign gods, which was the big problem. And so Israel had been waiting literally for centuries, thousands of years, for this promised Messiah to deliver them. And it began, if you're reading the story of Noah. Um, it began with a promise all the way back there in Genesis, and, and Noah's parents named him Noah because they thought maybe he's the offspring promise that's gonna bring freedom and peace and deliver this world from evil. They named him Noah because it literally means maybe he, he will be the one that saves us from this toil, this, this meaningless, hard existence that we have on this earth. So literally, all of human history has been waiting for this promised Messiah child Christ to come and deliver us from evil. We talked about how that's the theme in all of the big-selling books and stories and movies. We're looking for a Savior that's human but beyond human in His power. And then He brings this bad news, no, they're going to kill me. He did mention that He would be resurrected from the dead. But that that completely escaped their mind, and as we'll see, they did not understand what Jesus meant by that. All they could think about was was Jesus' statement that He would be killed, and all their hopes were dashed. And the transfiguration then comes in this passage, and I want to read it. It's Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8, short passage today. And after six days, now it's important when you're reading Mark to understand that when he makes an intentional time connection from one passage to the next, he wants you to connect it to the one that came right before it. Sometimes he just says, and if some time later, okay, that's not a connection, but six days. So we have to read this transfiguration account in the context of of their identifying Jesus as the Messiah. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Now, there's nothing special about that word. It just means he was changed in his appearance. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach him, could bleach them, L- literally. And I don't know why they just don't translate it. At this, it means that no launderer on earth could do could get it so white. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents: one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. So the disciples were stunned after hearing Christ say that he was going to be killed. And then you have this transfiguration story. Because Jesus said in in just the previous verse, chapter 9, verse 1, he said, yeah, I'm going to be killed, but some of you will see the power of the kingdom of God before you die. And boom, there's this next passage. Jesus did not, well, let me take a step back. God there's no indication from the text that Jesus knew what was going to happen, all right? There's no… We don't know that Jesus knew He would be transfigured when He went up to the mountain with the three disciples, but God did. Jesus would often go off alone into solitude to pray by Himself and to pray with His disciples. And it seems like that that's what's happening now. Jesus has put this, this bad news on them and what they perceive to be bad news, and they're gonna go off in solitude to pray. Now, Jesus knew because of what he said that some manifestation of the power of God would be made known to them, to some of them. But here it is right here. And God did not want to leave the disciples in this state of, first of all, confusion and misunderstanding, totally. They're gonna continue to be confused. But he did not want to leave them with the prominent impression of the Messiah suffering. He wanted to leave them with another impression. And that is the, this, this transfigured, this changed vision of Jesus. Because the, the message of, of Jesus and the suffering of the Messiah is not the whole story, and Jesus indicated that when he said, I'm, I'm going to be raised from the dead. But the, the, the disciples and us had to move past the centuries of suffering and the dashed hopes of an immediate coming kingdom and look and continue to look for something beyond, and God no longer wanted that to simply be the imagery of the stories of the Bible. Now, when the, when the text says that, that Elijah and Moses were with Jesus, it, it is drawing upon and what, and what God was wanting to, to, for them to capture as an image in their mind. Um, the the stories from the, the old testament scriptures in particular too at the end of Moses' life when he has the second generation of Israel, remember if you're familiar with the story, Israel grew over four hundred years. In the country of Egypt, they went from 70-ish people to millions of people over 400 years in the country of Egypt, and Egypt had enslaved them. And they asked for a deliverer, and Moses came as a deliverer. And he took them out, rescued them from Egypt through the 10 plagues that God brought, and Egypt was destroyed by the power of God, or its army was destroyed. And then they started their path towards the promised land. Great song choice today, worship team. Um, And they grumbled and complained the entire way about water and food. God had just saved them from the most powerful army on earth, but they didn't think that He could save them from starvation. And it got to the point after idolatry and more grumbling and complaining against God and against Moses where he just said, You know what? I am done with this group of people. I'm going to wait till you all die and I'll take your kids in. So Moses has got to wait around for another 40 years, dragging two, 2 to three million people while they gr- continue to grumble and complain and be idolaters, and so now he's got the kids, and he's telling them before he dies, because he got so mad at them once that he disobeyed God in in front of them publicly, so he dishonored God publicly, and God said, okay, Moses, you're not going into the promised land either. Moses just got fed up, but Moses says this. He says, you know what? There will be a prophet that comes like me, but unlike me, you will listen to Him. You will listen to Him because He's going to change you from having hard hearts to soft hearts that are humble before God and serve and worship Him. So, that's why Moses is up there, because Moses is the, is the remembrance of this promised prophet that would come, And at the end of the book of Malachi, which is the end of the Old Testament Scriptures, Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, Malachi says this, a prophet like Elijah will come and transform Israel. And so we see Moses, or the disciples saw Moses, the disciples saw Elijah, and what God was wanting them to understand is that the prophet has come. The prophet like Moses has come, the prophet like Elijah has come. Now, Jesus wasn't the prophet like Elijah as he'll go on to explain. John the Baptist was the prophet like Elijah who came as a forerunner to the Christ. So Moses said a prophet like me will come, that is the Christ. A prophet like Elijah will come who will be a forerunner to Christ, that was John the Baptist. So clearly in their minds, James and Peter of John would have understood this is the Messiah, this is the promise of hundreds of years of prophecy, of thousands of years of Israel's history, and the promise to the nations of the world. And the imagery here is obviously not a sufferer. It is a transfigured image of Jesus. It is a vision of Jesus glorified. It is an, a vision of Jesus that is beautiful. It is a vision of Jesus that is pure. It is a vision of Jesus that isn't in, isn't in his corrupt fleshly state, not a corrupt in terms of Jesus was a sinner, but Jesus had a fleshly body. Jesus had a fleshly body. When he rose from the dead, his body was a resurrected body, and it was not familiar with the disciples because the disciples were, were used to Jesus's corrupt fleshly body. He got a new body, just like we're all promised those who are believers in Jesus Christ, we will have a new body. And so, the disciples see a different Jesus. They see a beautiful Jesus. They see a powerful Jesus. They see a transformed Jesus. And they see a, a vision of Jesus um, that is not the final story of his death. And that vision of Jesus, and then, and then there's this voice from the cloud, again, Imaging um, God speaking to the nation of Israel from a cloud. If you're familiar with the stories of, of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt, God led the nation, His presence dwelling in a cloud. And He would speak to them from clouds. And so this is, I mean, the, what the disciples need to get <laughs> Um, is that they're no longer just fishermen. They are key players in this unfolding story, this unfolding history of God's purposes with all humanity, and not just Israel, but the nations of the world. Uh, They are standing in the midst of Elijah and Moses and now the Messiah. God wants the disciples to be elevated in their vision for who Jesus is, and, and you know, we're going to read over the next few chapters, and we don't have time to go through it in this series, verse by verse. But they're going to—it's the—the—they're going to get a little arrogant, and it's going to go to their heads because not so long from now, they're going to be asking, uh, Jesus, who gets to sit at your right hand? Uh, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? And so they begin to get a little conceited, which is not God's intent. It's not Jesus' intent. But But God does have an intent to show that the suffering of Jesus is not the final word. And that our suffering, all of these things that can cloud us, is not the final word. It's not the final word. There is a vision of power. There is a vision of glory. There is a vision of beauty. There is a vision of transformation. There is a vision of a world enveloped by God and His light that God wanted the disciples to keep before them. And He wants us to keep that before us as well. And here's the thing, as we think, you know, if you ask the question, okay, what do I need to do to make Jesus more glorious in my life? What do do I need to do to… Here's the thing, Jesus is glorious. Jesus is glorious. He is sitting right now at the right hand of God in His resurrected state, and all things in heaven and on earth are at His feet. He is head and rule above all things. And He dwells in glorious light that will be eternal, and eventually it will flood everything that we know in the new heaven and the new earth. There are not going to be any more stars or moons or lights other than the light that emanates from God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is glorious. The problem is our seeing and our thinking and our vision. our problems become too big and Jesus becomes too small. The power of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, the radiance of Jesus, the ability of Jesus to move and shape our lives and the people in our lives. We, we let th- those truths and those realities become clouded. And, and you know, there, it was a <laughs> bad story when I was in college, our, our home church, had a prominent man in the church and a prominent man in uh, in the community. He was superintendent of the school district in the area and a family man. Uh, he committed suicide. And somebody told me, I can't remember who it was, but I never will forget this imagery. He said, you know what? Our problems are like a spoon. And if you hold that spoon out, you know, the, the bowl of the spoon is… is it's fairly small, but the closer you bring that spoon to your eye, the, the bigger it becomes until eventually, if you put it right in front of your eye, all you see are the problems. He was holding that spoon. All he could see was the problems in his life, and he couldn't see the beauty. He couldn't see the truth. He couldn't see the, his family. He couldn't see his work. He couldn't see his church. He couldn't see, he couldn't see the glory of Jesus as overcoming and being greater than the problems that were in his life. You know, Paul says, and Paul was beaten and stoned and, and um, left to the elements and was shipwrecked and bitten by snakes and suffered all kinds of things. And he says, you know, our suffering is, is light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us in Christ. So what does it mean to seek the glory of Christ? I think think we've got to seek the glory of Christ and we've got to savor the glory of Christ. We've got to seek it and we've got to savor it. And the problem is, one of the problems is that we become too easily pleased. We become too easily pleased with the glories of this world uh, in that we don't possess as many as we'd like and we, we become overwhelmed with our troubles, and we keep seeking to be pleased. We keep seeking the life of glory, which is, which is a sense of being fulfilled. When the Scriptures talk about our pursuit of glory, it's, it's us being in a place of, of total fulfillment and completeness and happiness and beauty and all of the things that we long for and dream for and work towards. C.S. Lewis says, we become too easily pleased with the glories of this world. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Some of you have probably heard that quote. It's a common one. Um, But what I like about it is that this ignorant child who wants to keep on making mud pies in a slum is not rejecting something that he or she knows, the child is rejecting something that he or she does not even have a vision or comprehension of and makes mud pies because that's as good as it gets in the mind of that child. So do we see Jesus in that transfigured state of glory that, for like Paul, would help us to see that our suffering is just light and momentary? Is just light and momentary. How much of our resources, our time, our energy, and money are spent in the mud? To what extent are these things our efforts to pursue glory? You all experience, you all, all, in, in some ways, all of us, okay, all of us, extend our money, our time, our energy into these hopes. I call them stepping stones of hope. Some recreational experience, some relationship, maybe a party with some friends, new clothes, new food, new goals, financial pursuits. These things that, you know, maybe get us for a few days until we experience them and they're like, ugh. Ugh. That really wasn't as satisfying as I thought it was going to be. But there's something next week, or there's something next month, or there's something next year. We, we as Christians can do this. These little, these little stepping stones of hope, the days add up to months, the months add up to years, the years add up to decades, and we could live our lives as Christians, okay? And obviously as non-Christians, just hopping from one stepping stone of hope to the next and never getting to the end. We have to get a vision for what it means to, we have to get a vision for the glory of Christ. And to, and to settle into this, this lifestyle and, and worldview that holds Christ and His glory as first and foremost, when everything just kind of pales in comparison. And then we don't have these stepping stones of hope. We've got one vision of hope, and then we're on a sidewalk of getting there. And that sidewalk is a sidewalk of suffering but also of experiencing joy and glory through the suffering. We have to make an effort to renew our minds and it's going to take reading and study and meditation as individuals. It's going to take discussion in the scriptures together as a church community The church community is called the the pillar and support of the truth, okay? The truth doesn't rest in my interpretation. The truth doesn't rest in your interpretation. The truth does not rest in a a college or a seminary where great scholarship is conducted. The, The truth rests in the people of God pursuing Jesus together, praying for one another, serving one another, giving to one another, doing ministry together, studying the Bible together, and coming to a greater understanding of truth through our love speaking to one another. Truth speaking to one another in love. <laughs> we, we have to let the vision of the Scriptures and see, we, we have such a, a, our society is so flooded with images that the idea of, of reading and meditation and solitude around a book, it just seems such, such a strange and foreign idea. <laughs> and it is destroying us. Again, as Lewis said, if we, if we don't make an effort to, to think and pursue Scripture and to meditate and study in solitude and in community, I would add, we will be incapable of sincere friendships. He connects the quality of friendships to our meditations and to our study. And if the church is the pillar in support of the truth, as 1 Timothy 3, 15 and 16 says, then, then the, the Word of God, Jesus, the truth, has to be a part of who we are as a community. And we need to make efforts To really pursue the scriptures. This transfiguration story is short. But can you get an image of of Jesus, pure white, in power and in glory and radiant? We can get that picture. It's a brief picture, but I think it's a picture we can hold on to. And then when we fill it out with the rest of the narratives, can we see Moses'? on the mountaintop of Sinai. No, we don't know what Moses looks like. We don't know what Jesus looked like. We don't have pictures. But can we get an image of of a cloud booming with the voice of God, with lightning coming out of it, and Moses' face shining because he stood in the presence of God, and then walked. We can get these images in our minds. That's how they make movies. It seems like they just keep making movies more and more about books because the books are giving them the images and we just, we're so great at making images. We're losing our creativity, but we're great at making images. Somebody else wrote the books. And prayer. Now when I talk about prayer, I'm talking about really engaging God, believing that He's going to listen to you and do something about what you're praying about. We were in house church a few weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, Uh, and this is public and I'm not going to give you any specific names, but um, this person just shared some requests about just kind of just being overwhelmed and being anxious. And uh, I just said, hey, you know what? The Scriptures tell you to pray about what's making you anxious when you're anxious. So just try to stop wherever you're at when you're feeling the sense of being overwhelmed and anxious. Just stop and pray specifically for those things and ask God for help in, in getting you a, a, a mind that is clear and not confused and, and, and peaceful. And this person came back the, the next week or the week after and said, you know, I would consider myself a praying person. but I wasn't praying for my anxieties. This person said, I started doing that and it has changed. Don't think of prayer as something that you've gotta to do to please God and to be a good Christian. Think of prayer as something that is an effective tool for conquering your anxieties and fears and, and, and overcoming sin in your life and in the sin of others. I, uh, I'll be honest with you, a few months ago, I changed my prayer plan. I use a list. I've used a list since I was in high school. It's always worked for me. But as my spheres grow and the people that I'm concerned about have grown, um, and my responsibilities grow, the list grows. And eventually, the, you, you, to think of praying through the list, it was, honestly, you guys, it was becoming a burden. And I didn't want it to be a burden anymore. I didn't want prayer to be a burden. I think, I think things that, things, good things that we do and do well to some degree should be a burden because it means it's gonna be hard work and it's gonna take some sacrifice. But anyway, I, did, I was tired of it being a burden to be honest with you. And so I took my list and divided it up into seven sections and prayed for each of those sections, Well, the plan was to pray for each of those seven sections one day a week. Didn't work, I wasn't consistent, And after a few months, where I kind of began to see, you know, um, things seem to be closing in more. I'm not as at peace as I was. I've got some heart issues. (laughs) I'm crying a lot more. And the needs seem to be growing. I think I'm going to go back to my old plan. This was last week. And it was really great because it is a burden, Um, but I have to enter into it. And I went through the whole list, every name. I pray for my house church. I pull up the name. You know, I open up the city. You can see the participants and the group. I, I you know, we, we pray and share and we talk, so I know what's going on in the lives of everybody. Went through everyone. It took me over an hour, but at the end I was like, I felt peaceful, I felt at rest, I felt joyful, I felt empowered for the rest of my day, which is a full day of meetings and work and study felt good, and I can't wait to do it again. We, we have to enter into that burden. It is, you, are, you have to enter into the suffering. But you'll see that it's light and momentary and will result in glory. Just like last, you know, the message from a couple weeks ago. You have to die to yourself. You're gonna you know, I got some comments afterwards because it sounded like you know, marriage and child rearing are nothing but really painful exercises. And we all know that that to be true. But here's the thing that I didn't emphasize enough. I did in St. Paul because you guys is good corrections of me. Only when you give of your life and enter into the pain required to be a good spouse and a good parent will you have the joy of having a good marriage and a great family with kids that you love and love you. It is work, but that's the only way you're going to have joy in the family context. What does it mean to savor the glory of Christ? you know what? Gratitude. God has given you much. You need to take some time of solitude to meditate on what God has done for you and what God has given you. And that will create Gratitude that will create gratitude. And gratitude is a sincere expression of joy for what you have. Gratitude has to come out of joy. If it doesn't come out of joy, it's not gratitude. And if, if you don't have joy, obviously then you're not, you're, not, you're not happy. Gratitude means that your life is happy. Your life is fulfilled, your life is complete. And we are called to rejoice and to give thanks. And it is a sign of the fruit of of the Spirit working in us when we have gratitude. If you are not making expressions of gratitude to God, it's not God's fault. God is still glorious. Jesus is still glorious. Jesus is still powerful. His Spirit still dwells within you. The gospel still is the power of God for salvation. But if you don't have gratitude in your life, it means that you've become a spoiled, discontent child of God, just like we all can be and have been spoiled, discontent children of parents that have given us many good things. We just aren't thankful for them and the work that they do for us. Gratitude. Take some time to think about who God is and what he's done for you. And you'll begin to see in prayer and with some Scripture and some study and meditation and confession, you will see. I was talking with Seth this week. And we were just talking about this, this idea of mindfulness that is becoming increasingly popular over the last three or four decades. You know, a key element of mindfulness is gratitude, taking some time to stop and to think about the good things in your life and to th- be thankful for them. Celebration. It's why we worship. We don't worship because it's the thing that we are supposed to do on Sunday mornings when we meet as a church. We as a people of God are celebrators. We are worshipers. And we come together and worship as an expression of, of sincere gratitude and solitude and rest. Solitude and rest is a means to savor the glory of Christ. We, we have to have rhythms in our lives as individuals and as a community where we can, we can stop and think about God and His Word and who He is and what He's done and to reimage our minds and to get these visions of glory for who Jesus really is. If, if, if you know, if, if C.S. Lewis is right and said, we can't, we can't have good friendships without some solitude and meditation in our lives, how are we going to engage and have a friendship with God? Suffering is a reality, but we have to see it as a path to greater glory. But if we, if, if, if we don't see the greater glory, we'll never ins- interpret our suffering right, and it will eventually envelop us, and we will grow bitter and angry, discontent, and, and spoiled. See, Jesus, Jesus did not give up on that ultimate vision. The Scriptures say it was the joy set before Him that gave Him the ability and the energy to endure the cross and to scorn its shame, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It was the joy set before Him that gave Him the ability to persevere. He had that vision. Jesus knew the Scriptures. The Scriptures say that God taught Him the Scriptures from childhood. Jesus needed to be taught the Scriptures. He just didn't have it in His his mind like a hard drive. He learned to reason through the Scriptures, and it was the vision of the Scriptures that gave Him, that gave Him that that hope of future glory and joy. The Spirit of God lives in you. The Spirit of Jesus lives in you. If, If you have believed in Jesus Christ, if you have acknowledged your sin and need for Him, If you have believed that He died on the cross for your sins and has risen from the dead to show that through Him life over your sins is possible, if you have believed in that gospel, then the Spirit of God is in you, the Scriptures say. And if the Spirit of God is in you, then the vision for joy and the vision of your resurrection and the vision of Jesus Christ in glory is present within you. The problem isn't that Jesus isn't glorious. He is. You just aren't seeing it. And if the Spirit lives in you, you can see it. It will be there and it will manifest itself in you. You can stop playing in the mud. And you can look forward to that holiday at the sea. Let me pray. God, we, um, I thank you for not letting the disciples go without giving them that vision. And I pray, God, that you would give us that vision. I pray, God, that, that you would help us as a church through the season ahead, our seasons as families, as individuals, and the trials that we face in those contexts. Father, our, our, our seasons ahead as a church, help us to, to, to think through and to meditate on your glory that it would enliven us To where the the challenges and the suffering that we face would not be seen as problems that are going to condemn and overwhelm us, but problems that can be overcome through Christ and the glory of Christ and the hope of the gospel. In Your Son's name, amen.